Good morning. I'm glad that you guys are here. Uh, One of the things that strikes me every Sunday morning, and probably because I travel enough and have friends who pastor churches in other parts of the world, um, we're just joining a chorus of people who have started worshiping hours ago. Um, We have a team in the Czech Republic who seven hours ago in a little town called Bistra um, gathered with the church that we're partnering with to run an English camp. And um, they started worshiping seven hours ago. Um, they're finished, by the way. They're on a train on their way to Prague now. Uh, but they um, just started a train of worship that just spreads across the globe, uh, just kind of like the wave at a baseball game. Um, and we are joining that wave, worshiping the Lord, hearing from uh, his word today. Uh, this is a picture of our team, a couple comments I'm going to make. Uh, on the left is the team with a couple of the uh, folks in the in the um, in the front there, Peter and David and Philip, who are uh, part of the Czech leadership team. The picture on the left is them at, um, at training. The picture on the right is them at camp. And something's happened because Andrew on the right has been excommunicated from the group. I'm not sure what happened, but I do know that this morning, uh, this is them at, in front of the church there, and Andrew's part of the group again. So reconciliation has taken place. Not sure about all of that there. Um, but uh, we, we just have uh, such a great opportunity to partner around the world. And there's actually an opportunity, if you're interested in something a little closer, that's not seven hours away in a lot of time zones uh, and jet lag, um, we have some trips to the Nicaragua that are coming up, and we have an information meeting after the second service. If you want to come back after the second service in uh, the library, we're going to be talking about our next number of years going to the Czech Republic, and we have an opportunity uh, to go there. We're in a series um, going through the Bible one book at a time. We've reached an interesting book, and I just want to let you know if you've got younger children, if they're young enough to not understand, that's fine. If they're old enough to understand, that's good. Um, but we're going to talk about Song of Solomon today. And, and I'm going to say this, too. If you feel like your kids should not maybe hear this, I'm going to beg you, then you talk to them about it. If you don't want me to talk to them about it, then you should talk to them about it, okay? So just fair warning, we're getting ready to go into um, a, a, a lesson on the Song of Solomon, and I think I can introduce it this way. This is how I introduced it a number of years ago. Hold it, hold it. What is this? Are you trying to trick me? Is this a kissing book? Wait, just wait. When's it get good? Keep your shirt on. Let me read. This is a kissing book. <laughs> and a little bit more. Um, although I want to tell you that as we are working through these poetic books, and this is the last one that we're working through specifically, uh, working through the language, issues of heart and soul, um, this book doesn't get um, over the edge. There's nothing l- lewd in this book. Uh, There is nothing that um, I feel uncomfortable talking about in this book. Um, There's a a point where the door shuts and you don't know what's going on behind the door, but you know what's going on behind the door. They're just not describing it. But this book is a realistic book, okay? It's one of the poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And this particular book is dealing with romantic love. Um, 
Back in 2016, I did 12 messages on this book, um, and so I would encourage you, if you're like, you know what, I really need more than what you are going to get this morning, um, go back and listen to those messages. I wish we had been videoing things back then, uh, because I used a lot of really fun video clips, uh, some others from Princess Bride, from On Golden Pond, uh, from other places, and by the way, for those of you who are like, I have no idea what On Golden Pond is, um, oh my gosh, there's a scene in there that makes me cry every time. Um, but I, I encourage you, if you're looking for a little bit more, um, I thought this was one of the most uh, in, in engaging and um, probably difficult series that I enjoyed that, that I've ever done, okay? So we're going to talk about Song of Solomon. A couple of things that I want to say to begin with, and um, just being honest with you about these things. Um, I'm not a perfect husband, um, although Dawn and I have a very strong marriage. Um, we've been married 37 years and still growing and still need to grow, even from some things that happened yesterday. <laughs> we need to grow. And God's forced me uh, to, to move into places in my marriage that I, I, didn't, I wish I didn't have to walk through some of these places uh, of grief and sorrow and difficulty and tension and challenge in my marriage, but, but God has forced me to move into those places and grow. Um, I, I will tell you this, and I'm going to make a point. I've read widely and consistently um, about the topic of marriage. There's a little asterisk there. <laughs> Knowing and executing are very different, okay? My wife would affirm that as well. I know a lot more than I execute on, um, but I think... <laughs> My, my reading has helped me get a perspective on some things, and, and I want to encourage everybody in terms of how to listen to this message, do not weaponize this message. Do not talk about this message with your spouse by saying, you're not loving me well. Stop that. Totally listen to this message as the lights come on. <laughs> totally listen to this message from the perspective of how can I love better, period, full stop. How can you love better? Now, I am blessed to have a gracious wife um, who, 37 years we've been married. There's a lot of grace there. But one of the best things about being married to my wife is that she doesn't allow us to pretend, defend, or blame. Um, she's just, she's not okay with that. She, we address things. Uh, but above all, above having a gracious and wonderful wife, I know that God is gracious, and he loves to redeem things, and that gives me hope for my own marriage after 37 years to continue to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And so no matter how long you've been married, or if you're not married, I want to encourage you to continue to pursue growing deeper and deeper in your marriage. With that introduction, we're going to look at the book of Song of Solomon, um, the Song of Songs, it is called. I'm going to talk about that in uh, just a minute. Um, the reason I have this chorus, even on the chart that's out there at the Connection Center, the reason I have this chorus is because one of the things that happens again and again is there's a chorus of people who are, are singing the glories of love because it's something that God celebrates and something that should be celebrated. And so this book is a celebration. This book is also poetry. Um, here's, a, here's the introduction to the book. This is the first line. I'm going to read it in Hebrew, and you'll hear the poetry of this. Shir hasharim asher hashalamon. All of the shasha sounds in there are, are specifically put in there. A song, the song of songs, which belongs to Solomon. But it's put in a poetic way. You could say that a lot of different ways. 
but they happen to say it in a, in a very beautiful way. And so this book is going to be poetry in a beautiful way. I'm going to have to explain some of the things, some of the poetic things. You need to understand some backgrounds to some of the things, and I'm going to work with some of that. If you really want all of it, go back to those 12 messages. But I also want to say this. Um, from Julie Slattery's book um, that I'm going to recommend here in just a minute, Julie Slattery says this, the culture tells us that we are made for sexual expression. The scripture tells us that we are made for intimacy, and sexuality is a part of that relationship. The church, broadly, has bought the lie of the world, and that is the primary entitlement you have in marriage is sexual fulfillment. That's a lie. Your marriage is made for intimacy. We're getting into this pretty quick, aren't we? Your marriage is made for you to learn intimacy. And that is an important reality to recognize that the sexual expression of that is simply is simply an expression. It is not the primary thing. Um, I want to go on to say this, and I put Dawn and I back in there because we do talk about these things, and she's so glad that this is Song of Solomon's over and I'm moving to the prophets, little judgment, be better at our house, that we're not talking and having these conversations all the time. But I am going to tell you this. If the church doesn't speak about this biblically, the culture will fill in the answers. If we don't talk about this up front... And you don't talk about this in your families because you're scared of it. The culture is going to fill in the answers, and the culture is going to tell you anything goes, fulfillment is the primary issue, and get as much as you can get in the way you can get it and take advantage because it's all about you and your fulfillment. And we've, got to, we've got to talk about these things. So unabashedly, we're going to talk about it. And I want to tell you this. The biblical message about sexuality is essentially positive. God invented it. God invented parts of our bodies that are only, their only function is pleasure. God invented this. And the core theological truth is not that you're entitled to sexual fulfillment. That's the world's view. Gender, marriage, sex, it's all a model of something far greater. It points to something far greater. We are created in his image. In Ephesians chapter 5 that we just talked about a few weeks ago when Michael was talking about it, there's a whole section in there about men and women and about marriage. And he's talking about um, women submitting and men um, loving. And when he finishes the section, he says, but I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is and always has been a model for our relationship with God. And you need to frame your relationship with with God and your relationship with your spouse that way. Because you should constantly be growing in your relationship with God and in your relationship with your spouse. Which is, again, why I'm going to highly, highly recommend this book, God's Sex and Your Marriage. It is a book that frames your marriage that way. And, And the thing that she does so wonderfully in this book is she makes the parallel that when you grow in your relationship with God, there is a growth in covenant faithfulness, intimate knowing, sacrificial love, and passionate celebration. And that's what your marriage should reflect. 
Your marriage should reflect covenant faithfulness. That's why you start your marriage with marriage vows, a covenant faithfulness. It should be growing intimate knowledge, getting to know your spouse more and more and more. And as you get older, it's necessary to know what are the changes taking place? What's going on there? It's it's important that it be sacrificial love. Loving the person they need, the way they need to be loved. There's no formula for this. The specifics are unique to your marriage and unique to their needs. But I'm telling you, the whole gamut is needed. You can't just say, I spend time with them, but not give them words of affirmation if I use the love language stuff. You can't just give words of affirmation, but not give gifts every now and then. You can't give gifts every now and then and not do quality time with them or serving them. By the way, that's exactly the same thing that's true of your relationship with God. You can't just give him a gift, put your money in the offering and say, we're done. Hey, he likes words of affirmation. It's called praise. You can't just say, well, I praised him and not put anything in the offering or not serve him. The whole gamut is necessary of all of the ways we love each other in how we love the Lord. There's a parallel here, folks. There's a parallel. And if you're not investing and growing deeply in your marriage, you're missing something really, really important in your relationship with God. All of them should be growing in terms of your covenant faithfulness and loyalty and prioritization and intimate knowing of the other person, sacrificially loving, not to get your needs met, but to meet their needs. And passionately celebrating that, all of that is related to how God has formed marriage to be a part of our growth spiritually. And this has started from the very beginning. I'm going to make another point out of all of this as well. Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible tells us this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth over all creation that moved along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image he created them, male and female he created them. We are created in the image of God as males and females. That's part of the image. I'm not talking about science. I'm not talking about society. I'm talking about God. God said we are created as men and women. People struggle with that, and we need to love the heck out of them. When people struggle with those issues, our judgment does not help them move toward God. Our love will help them move towards God. We need to be a church that is welcoming of everybody but not affirming. By the way, that's how you should be with me. You should welcome me, but not affirm my sin, because you know what? Every Sunday, I'm welcoming you, but I'm not affirming your sin. So we need to not treat anybody else any differently. But God has made us as male and female. And those, by the way, are sexual terms. I've talked about this numerous times. The word for male there, zakar, literally means the pointed one. It has a sexual connotation to it. Part of how we are created in the image of God has a sexual bearing to it. The word for female there is the pierced or the tunneled one. These are sexualized terms because there's something about how God created your body 
men and women, male and female, to reflect him. And I think it takes both a man and a woman to fully reflect God and produce life, which is what God always does. He produces life. In Genesis chapter 1, it's life around the planet. In the New Testament, it's eternal life. God's all about producing life. We can't do that on our own, but as we partner together, as men created the image of God, women created the image of God, we produce life. This is an important theological truth that we need to hold on firm and fast and love people who struggle with it. And love people who struggle with it. It seems to me that God has made us, and I put this chart up all the time, God has made us so that men reflect his strength and women reflect his beauty. Men reflect God's sovereign power and women reflect his gracious mercy. And it takes both to fully reflect who God is. And that's why your marriage for your children, the society, children around us, your marriage is so important because it reflects who God is. And it's not easy. It is not easy. I love this quote by Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler, when he was dating, decided that at one point he needed to not continue to date Lauren because about every six weeks they had a big fight. He went to his mentor and he said, I keep fighting with her and it's probably, I need to probably break it off. And here's what he said to him. Brother, you're going to fight with someone the rest of your life. Do you want it to be Lauren? Okay. Welcome to marriage. Okay. You're going to fight with somebody the rest of your life. Who are you going to let it be? Here's another hopeful thing. And, and I've said this already. I'm going to say it again. There is no sin past present or future, that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't care where you've been, what your past is, God can redeem it. No matter what you're involved in presently, God can redeem it. But he wants to redeem it, and we need to let him redeem it and be involved and active in pursuing that redemption. So now let's finally get to the context of who's writing this book, when it's written, where it is, and why in the world this book is in the Bible. Okay? So, there's a lot of different approaches to this book. I, just, I don't need you to learn any of this. I just need you to hear the different approaches. Jack Deere says this, the song has been interpreted as an allegory, an extended type, a drama involving two or three main characters. I'm going to talk about that more. A collection of Syrian wedding songs, a collection of pagan fertility cult liturgies, an anthology of disconnected songs extolling human love. People go a lot of different places with this. Um, I'm going to try to make sense of, of some of all this. So we're going to have to start with who composed the Song of Songs, okay? Who wrote this? Because what it says is it's the Song of Songs that belongs to Solomon. Solomon may have collected it. It belongs to him. He, he may not have written it, although I think he probably wrote it, but that presents some challenges that we're going to have to talk about. Solomon has traditionally been viewed as the author. So this is either early in his life before his many, and I'm going to just define them as relationships, um, so early in his life, before all of the, the um, 300 wives, 700 concubines, all that came in to be, maybe this is early in his life, or perhaps it's late in his life, and he's reflecting back on that, and he's reflecting back, he's going, man, I made a mess of this, this is what it should have looked like. Either one of those is possible, or most likely, he's presenting the ideal, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we are supposed to really seek to achieve. He's presenting the ideal. This is what it looks like from a realistic perspective. Now, if you're like me, you're, you're saying, there's a book on marriage and sex that's written by a dude 
who had 300 wives and 700 concubines? How did that get in the Bible? Why him? First thing I want to say is because God chose to inspire him to write this book. That's the first reason. But I also want to give you something to consider, and, and I don't know where I land on this. I really don't know where I land on this. But I want you to think about this. Solomon, just talking about Solomon. Only Rehoboam is mentioned as a son in the Bible. He's only, only one son is mentioned. Three daughters, one son. For a guy who's got 300 wives and 700 concubines, I would think maybe there'd be more sons mentioned. Only one. There's no family struggle for political power at the end of his life. With David, his sons are battling each other for political power. There's no battle for political power. When his court is mentioned, there's no other family members mentioned. And when he's um, judged, his sin is highlighted as idolatry, not polygamy. I'm not 100% sure that all of those other relationships that he had weren't strategic and political completely. Maybe, I have no idea. Maybe he only had one marriage relationship. Everybody else was political and strategic, which would fit with his strategic, um, not-so-sanctified approach to life. Um, But maybe he did, and the Bible just doesn't mention them because they're not important. And we still have to go, however, whatever was going on in Solomon's life, whether he collected this, whether he wrote this as a reflection or as a presentation of the ideal, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is what God wants us to understand. So you can interpret the song only literally and say it only applies to marriage. You can interpret only allegorically and say, well, this isn't about marriage. This is about God's love. I actually think you need to do both. You can present it. It's just a collection of songs that are just kind of thrown together. You can say it has a real plot line. I think it's a collection of songs that has a plot line. You can say it's erotic to be censored, and I think you need to be careful about how you use this book, but I do think it's poetic, and it's in the Bible because we should read it. So I think all of these things are true. (laughs) So who's the audience? This is one of the most interesting things about the book. The Song of Solomon is written for believers of all ages, it has a message for single people, newlyweds, mature married couples, and has a message for all worshipers. Because it is a book about marriage, but marriage always, from beginning to end, marriage has always been a model of God's love for us. So it's a model for, it it's, has a message for worshipers. Let me see if I can take that apart a little bit. Um, go back to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is written for young men telling them to wait for intimacy be, within marriage. It's worth it. The book of Proverbs, again, is saying, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. And it tells them, wait. Don't get involved outside of marriage. It's worth it if you do that. That's what Proverbs says. Song of Solomon, on the other hand, is not addressed, my son, my son, my son. It it keeps being addressed, oh, daughters of Jerusalem, oh, daughters of Jerusalem. It's written to young girls telling them to wait for intimacy within marriage. It's worth it. So for the singles, here's the message. Don't awaken love before it's time. Wait. Talk to your kids about this because the world is telling them, awaken love as soon as you can. Don't awaken love before it's time because it's a powerful deal and you're going to fight with somebody for the rest of your life and you better make a wise choice as to who you want to fight with. But the book is also written um, to to tell them, don't awaken this love, but it's written for... um, Couples, 
telling them to keep the passion alive in your, in your marriage. Because this, this book is going to flow from their engagement to their marriage to a mature marriage where they're having conflicts and resolving them. And in the middle of all of that, there's still passion. So I want to encourage you. This book is written for all ages. Um, here's how, it, how the, the resolution of their conflict ends. It, it begins this way and ends this way. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Do you feel that way about your spouse? Do they know you feel that way because you tell them like worship? Because you give them gifts from time to time like an offering? That you spend time with them like your quiet time? That you do acts of service like serving the Lord? Are you loving your spouse like you love the Lord. And if you're not, you should be growing in how you love your spouse so that you can learn a little bit more about how you can love the Lord. So, when was this song written? Well, it's connected to Solomon for sure. At some point in Solomon's life, he set forth his reflections on marital love under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's the key part here. But regardless of how well he applied it, me too, God's revelation, this is God's revelation to us, and it's profitable for us. We're obligated to engage with it and obey its teachings. Engage with it. Read this book. It is about what you think it's about as you're reading through it. It's not that hard to understand, actually. I'm going to try to help you with that a little bit today. But then obey its teaching. Develop this part of your passionate connection with the Lord. Why was Song of Solomon written? It's a dramatic poem about human love written by God to give us wisdom for relationships and worship because relationship and worship are actually the same thing. Worship is your relationship with God. Marriage is your relationship with somebody else. They work the same way. Covenant faithfulness, intimate knowing, sacrificial love and passionate celebration. That's what worship and marriage should all be about. It's intimacy in the context of covenant. That's marriage, that's worship. So how do we get into this book? How's the song organized? Some people do say it's just a collection of love poems. It's a collection of love poems and there's parallel love poems. Although I am going to tell you the parallel love poems in in Egypt and Mesopotamia, the parallel love poems are way more lurid and unreadable. When they were first discovered, they weren't translated into English. They were translated into Latin. This was in the late 1800s because the people knew we shouldn't make this available to everybody. (laughs) The Song of Solomon is a much higher level than that. Um, But I don't think this is a collection. There are some people who say there's three people involved here. There's the Shulamite, the shepherd, who are in love with one another, and Solomon, who's trying to come in and woo the Shulamite, the woman, away. Um, Ah, you could read it that way, Um, but but I don't think that's what's going on. I really do think there's only two people. I don't think this is um, majority, the shepherd and this woman, and and Solomon has to be rebuffed, and, and she says, no, I'm really in love with this guy. Um, I think there's two people, and it moves from their courtship at the beginning of the book, a clear wedding in the middle of the book, and then their marriage at the end of the book. Here's, here's basically how this thing works. Um, their courtship is at the beginning, and, and it seems like in that courtship, um, she doesn't even know who Solomon is, that he's the king. He's come out into the countryside. Clearly, she lives in the country. He lives in the palace. He's come out into the countryside, And she doesn't know he's the king, but they fall in love. So 
when he comes for the wedding and he brings his royal entourage in the middle, she's shocked. Oh my God, who is this guy with the entourage? I didn't know it was the king. And it really, it was the king. And they have this wonderful wedding. All in that, they are longing to be one with one another. They're longing for marital intimacy. After the marriage, they get in, after their wedding, they get into the marriage. And in, the, in it, there is a fight, Okay. It's hard to interpret a little bit of it because she even says, I'm dreaming. I'm going to show you that. She's kind of half awake, half sleeping, and this thing goes on, and, and she's trying to describe this, this dream-like um, frustration that they have. It's probably a dream, um, but there's some literalness to it. Probably some event took place. Now she's dreaming about it, but they resolve it. So they're, they're, they're courting. They get married. Once they're married, they have a fight and they resolve it. Folks, this is realistic. I don't know what marriage you live in, but that's realistic, okay? And the Bible talks about it. So what's the message? Here's how I put it on the chart. Solomon recorded poetic reflections on the relationship of love between a husband and a wife, showing the rapturous wonder of love of the love relationship through its growth from courtship to maturity in order to demonstrate the glorious gift of human sexuality within the covenant of marriage and to admonish the daughters of Jerusalem, young unmarried people, not to become involved in love relationships before the proper time. It's great. It's wonderful. Celebrate it in the right context and at the right time. That's what this book tells us. Let me talk you through how this kind of works. She's feeling insecurity, even in their courtship. This is chapter one. Here's what she says. I'm not worthy of your attention. She says, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Cador, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons, my brothers, were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. I'm not taking care of my own body because my brothers were mean to me. They made me work outside, and now I have dark skin, and I'm kinda, I got a, a, a hard complexion. And I'm not like those girls up in the palace in Jerusalem who have alabaster skin and and who have been taken care of and pampered their whole lives. I'm not like that, so don't even look at me. She's insecure. You need to figure out what your wife's insecurity is. It may not be her looks. It may be something else. It may be her capacities. It may be um, her energy level. I don't know what it is. But you need to think, okay, where's, where's my wife's struggle? Where does my husband struggle? with insecurity. And his response is this, you're beautiful in my eyes. Oh, if you don't know, almost beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flocks and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. They're out in the country and she's saying, oh, you're beautiful among the, and I just love being with you. It's a wonderful thing. You're beautiful in my eyes. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Really wonderful, right? You're like a horse. Think about this for a minute. Culturally, read closely. You're like a mare, female horse, among the chariots of Pharaoh drawn by all the stallions. You're the one mare among the stallions, and you drive them wild, just like you drive me wild. This is a compliment. This is really a compliment. Um, She says this later on in the book. I'm commonplace. I'm really nothing special. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. That sounds so nice, doesn't it? Oh, I'm the rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valley. Look at this. I'm all ready. That's not at all what she's saying. Here's what she's saying. I'm the rose of Sharon. That's it. It's a lily. 
It's a wild flower that grows crazy wild in, in Israel. And here is um, a picture of a field of it. I'm nothing special. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm, I'm no standout. I'm nothing. Here's his response. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. You're not just one of the many. You're the one lily among all the thorns. Now, all that background is kind of interesting, and it clarifies some things. Here's the point. Men and women struggle with insecurity. And a marriage is made so that you can encourage that person in their insecurity and say, I am covenantly faithful, loving you. I'm going to sacrificially love you. I'm going to know you more and more and more. And as we grow old together to find out more of your insecurities or your changing insecurities, and I'm still going to passionately celebrate it. And he goes on to describe her. And, and there's a couple of times that he describes her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her cheeks, her neck, her breasts. She, he goes through the whole description. He keeps going down, by the way. Here's the, here's the picture of it, if you did it literally. It would look like this. All of that makes perfect sense, though. Your hair is like a flock of sheep. You know what? A flock of goats was the most valuable thing you had because it's how you made your livelihood. Your, your, your hair is so valuable. All of these things are perfectly understandable descriptions, and he's trying to help her um, feel good about herself. And she gets excited. She's elated to see her, her lover coming in the spring. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Your wife said that to you lately? You're like a gazelle. Um, ladies? You ever said anything encouraging to your husband like that somehow? Wow, you did that great. It doesn't have to be you're, you're a young stag and a gazelle. It could just be you're really good at that. Their love is deep and filled with intensity and passion, irrespective of how their relationship may have begun. Their love is not self-centered, but reflects a deep concern for the desires, the well-being of the other. Their mutual love and commitment reflects the steadfast and loyal love that the Old Testament refers to as chesed, pursuing the best for others. Do not weaponize this book and demand that your spouse love you this way. Stop it. Read this book and say, how can I practice this and love my wife more passionately, more knowingly, and more celebrative than I ever have before? And his enthusiasm, he's anxious to see her face and hear her verse. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the cannies of the cliff, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. These little foxes, it's an important reminder. A little fox, um, it's the presence of foxes that imply a threat to the relationship. Foxes are not dangerous, they're annoying. But if you let them go, they'll destroy. You need to take care of the little things that are a threat to your relationship. Al Ross says this, foxes represent pests to the vineyard. And since their love is represented by the image of the vineyard, and since the time of the blossom is the period of their budding romance, the foxes would signify anything that would, renew, would, would ruin it. Address the little foxes. Talk to one another. Talk about them. Share. <laughs> Be vulnerable. Be clear. Talk about these things. She has a dream, by the way. This is, this is when they have this fight, okay? 
there's indifference, absence, and misunderstanding. But it's all kind of something happened, and now she's dreaming about it. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew. My uh, hair is uh, with dampness of the night. It seems like he's, he's wanting to be with her. She says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? She kind of rebuffs him, okay? He's wanting to be with her, and, and something has happened, and, and now she's dreaming about this conflict that happened. What happens is now he goes away. He's like, okay, and he goes away, and she's going to go looking for him. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Now she's thinking, okay, I really, now I do want to be with him. I arose and opened uh, for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh, and the handles of the bolt. I was ready for him. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank in his depart- at his departure. I looked for him he didn't, and did not find him. I called him. He didn't answer. She goes looking in the streets. Probably not a real thing. This is in her dream. She's looking for him in the streets. She finds some other people. They help him find her. It's all part of this dream. But eventually they are reconciled. And in their reconciliation, there's been a misunderstanding and their praise is a lavish. They don't go griping to others about this. Um, they're it, it, you just don't go and talk to other people about your marriage, okay? <laughs> talk to each other about it. But when there's a reconciliation, it gets back to, yes, nothing has changed. I am my beloved's and he is mine. He browses among the lilies. That's in chapter 6, the reconciliation after the fight. It's the same words that are used back in chapter 2. My love is still steadfast. We had a conflict, but it's good. He repeats the images he has used to show that nothing has changed, but he leaves out the erotic descriptions because he first wants to affirm his love, and he adores her. Not just he desires her, he adores her. He wants to be with her. And the book ends with this climactic seal of perfect love. (laughs) Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would utterly be scorned. You can't buy love. You have to work at it. You can't assume love. You have to work at it. You can't relax because your flesh will take over. You've got to work at it. Love is so valuable. When interpreted literally, Song of Solomon teaches emphatically that pure erotic love in marriage is God's good and sacred gift to be enjoyed, nurtured, and protected. Don't push it. Daughters of Jerusalem, don't awaken love before it's time. But when it's time, God sanctions it, and it's a way that you can grow and learn. So what do we do with all this? Where does this fit? Song of Songs encourages single people to wait for intimacy within marriage. It's worth it. Wait, it's worth it. There's a lot of talk that's going on about the purity culture from about 20 years ago and the damage that some of the purity culture has done. Um, I think a lot of the criticisms are accurate. One of the criticisms said this, if you wait, everything will be great. Wrong. (laughs) Love, sex, it's difficult. You've got to figure it out. It takes a while to figure it out. The world, television, movies, they're selling a lie. You've got to work at this. It's worth it to wait. But waiting doesn't guarantee that it's all going to be easy. 
Song of Songs is written for couples telling them to keep the passion alive in their marriage. It's worth it. It will change, but keep the passion alive. The adoration, the growing knowledge, keep it all alive. Folks, passion is not perverse. Don't avoid it. Passion is powerful. Don't ignore it. And passion is pivotal. Don't neglect it. God wrote a whole book about this. So don't awaken love before it's time. Live in covenant faithfulness with your spouse. Deepen your commitment to grow in physical intimacy. Learn how to worship by giving yourself to another in the context of covenant faithfulness. You learn how to do this in your marriage, and it'll make you a better worshiper. If you feel entitled, you will bring that to your relationship with God, and you'll believe that God is entitled to give you things. And he's not. He graciously gives us things. He graciously saves us. So what are some next steps? I'll, refrain, I'll reaffirm my covenant promise to be faithful to my wife. God can forgive things that have happened in the past. Maybe it's something even just in your mind, but, but affirm your covenant faithfulness to your spouse. Pray that God will help you listen to your spouse about your relationship. Did you hear me? Pray that God will help you listen to your spouse so that when they say, I'm dark, don't look at me. I'm, I'm just... I'm one among many. I'm not special. So that you can hear what's really happening there. And you can respond appropriately. And talk to your children about the importance of intimacy within marriage. Folks, if you don't talk to them about it and tell them God talks about it, the world's going to fill in the gaps and the world will fill in the gaps saying you're entitled to pleasure, get it any way you can, and pornography, violence, all of that's going to be part of the narrative for them if you don't give them the narrative from Scripture. Meditate on your relation, the relationship between worship and intimacy. And that leads us to this. I've talked about marriage. No, I haven't talked about marriage. I've talked about our relationship with God. A relationship of covenant faithfulness. A relationship of growing intimate knowledge of one another. Of sacrificial love and passionate celebration. Marriage is a huge foundational picture of that. But it should all point us to what we remember here that God covenanted to send a redeemer, he did. He sacrificially loved us and laid down his life for us. And we're going to celebrate that today. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray that we shift gears here for a moment. We shift into that relationship with God. We've been talking about loving others. Now we're going to talk about loving God. And let's remember that the foundation of how we love one another is right here. We love because he first loved us. Here's the symbol of it. God sent his son, his son sacrificed, laid down his life, shed his blood. And we literally celebrate that today. Father, help us to understand clearly your passion for us, your sacrifice for us. And Father, I pray that as we, um, we remember that, that we have a physical connection with it here. That it would deepen our appreciation for how you love us. And we would think about that now and let that bleed into our week by how we love others. I ask that in the name of our redeeming, 
sacrificial, loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.